Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be chatting with power couple Galena Hale and David Meyer about, among other things, food systems innovations, an organization which is dedicated to creating a more sustainable, humane, and equitable global food system while creating value for all stakeholders. We've been having a lot of power couples on lately. I like it. Yeah, no, the, the, this is an amazing interview and I really learned a lot. And what they're doing, Galena is a um, very sophisticated uh, economist. As soon as I hear the word economist, I get scared because I never know what they're talking about. But she was very comprehensible. And what, they're really working at a high level of trying, you know, to to figure out how we're going to shift this monolithic food system uh, to to be more compassionate. They're dedicated vegans. I, I loved this interview, one that you don't want to miss. Very exciting. Seems kind of different too. So I love that. So before we get to that, I thought we could just catch up a little bit. I know that we've both been sort of invested in uh, trying to find downtime. And of course, downtime for you means like reading incredibly complex books that Oh, that's, go, that's so not true. I wish it's that's who I want to be. That's not actually who I am. Really? You seem to always be reading the smartest shit. I, I start smart books. I don't necessarily finish them. But actually, the book that I did pick up finally, I think it's very relevant to this week's conversation, though I hope what I say about it isn't stupid because, you know, in case Galena and David are actually listening. <laughs> but <laughs> it's George Monbiot's book, Regenesis. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. I'm sure a lot of you have read it. It's a much harder book than I thought it was going to be. And the thing that struck me particularly since, you know, we're talking about food systems innovations this week, is he talks a lot about complex systems, at least, you know, in, in the part that I'm reading. I am assured that the book becomes very hopeful. I'm reading the non-hopeful part now. And it's, and it's, it's, there's a lot of science. I don't want to discourage anybody because, it, you know, if I can read it, you can read it. But uh, there's this, the, the chapter that talks about complex systems, he's talking about the fact that not just the food system, he's applying this idea to the food system, but there are these things called complex systems, which is, it's not just that it's complicated, it's not just that it's got a lot of parts, it's that it's it's reached a level where it is running itself in a way. There are so many different parts, and it's so um, complex, and that we imagine when we hear about the food system that there are people out there, well, there are people who understand the food system and they understand how it works. They understand, you know, all the imports and the exports and 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 where things are being grown and, and, and all of that. Well, according to him, that's not really true. The system actually becomes so big and so complicated that nobody really understands it. Nobody's running it. It is running itself. And it decisions are made with just kind of by the system, if if I'm explaining it right. And I just, I mean, it was, it's fascinating. It sounds exactly right. You know, humans think that they, they make a lot of decisions about things, but actually this is really true of life in general. You know, we just go along with the way things are and then the way things are become even more complicated and we just go along with that. And I, it kind of explains for me how, how we've gotten into this unbelievable disaster because all of these trillions of animals are caught in this system and nobody there's nobody to say well that's wrong they're just it's just the system and it's just the way it is and it's just the way everybody we all just function within it vegans have opted out 
of, of the system a little bit, but fundamentally the system is running itself. So I really hope, like I said, I'm told that this book gets very hopeful. So uh, I'm not at that part yet. So I'm hoping that he explains how, like how how are we going to shift this if it's if it's so big that nobody really understands it? And he does say that it it's also the more the more organized it gets and the more efficient it gets, actually the more vulnerable it gets because there are fewer there are fewer nodes where decisions are made or or things shift places where things shift. And so uh, he thinks that our foods the global food system is aside from anything that's happening to animals, which he hasn't really discussed yet in the part I've read. He just thinks it's extremely vulnerable, uh, extremely vulnerable that, you know, we think there'll always be all this food that, and that's not true. You know, obviously when you pour climate into this, uh, that right. makes it like insanely vulnerable. So this week, this week's interview, which has to do with, uh, you know, some hopeful views about what can be done to shift the system, I think it's very timely. So are you a prepper now? <laughs> I've always, I've always been a prepper. <laughs> Yeah, that's true pre- to some well, extent. Well, I'm not very efficient about prepping, but um and you know, I don't get a lot done. It's pretty much like everything else in my life, but at heart, yeah, totally. Prepper at Heart by Marianne Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I I haven't obviously Disaster read this. Disaster looms. Disaster is always looming. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh my gosh, no, it's fine. It's just that you're such a doomist, and it like it makes me feel like I can't be because you are. Like it makes <laughs> because like we can't no. both be. No, enter my world. Enter my world. So it's it's interesting because you know uh, when you talk about that, and again, I haven't read the book. I'm just listening, like everybody else is. The first thing I thought of was assimilation and how so many social justice movements assimilate, like the LGBTQ movement. We fought for, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, and we ultimately won for now. And obviously, that's a very flawed institution, and it's a flawed institution that we have a right to be in, too, but it's a flawed institution nonetheless. And I I see the same thing going on with, uh, you know, the veganizing of the world is still based in a capitalistic structure that hasn't been recreated or redefined. So it makes me worried that even like the vegan version will have at least some kind of uh, potential of extreme collapse. Oh, yeah. The issue. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, like, I'm not sure we can create the perfect world. Uh, Let's at least get the animals out of it. Mm -hmm. I I was wondering where you were going with that. That was a great analogy, but I I, I wasn't hearing it at first. I was like, what is she talking about? That's so funny. You're always a little nervous on my behalf when I go on a rant. That is not true. No, you should be. Like, I've been babbling and rambling. I feel like (laughs) I keep forgetting words. Like, I was watching this show. It's called Poker Face with Natasha Lyonne. I've only watched the first episode. It's pretty good, but violent. And... And she kept forgetting words, like very obvious words. And it was like, that's me. And it's like, my whole life is words. That always makes me feel better. Because when you start forgetting words at my age, you're like, oh shit, what's going on? Yeah. It's always reassuring for me to remember. Yeah, I've always forgotten things. (laughs) It's not that new. Yeah. It's, I'm a broadcaster and a writer and I forget words. I mean, how inconvenient is that? But uh, in any case, I have been also reading. Well, and by reading, I mean listening because I, I don't have the no, capability of reading. Listen <laughs> to a book counts. It totally counts. Okay. Well, I just wanted to offer that little caveat that I listen to books constantly, constantly. And I, I'm a big fan of my library app. Uh, so I'm constantly downloading them from my library app, which makes me feel very satisfied. Every time I go in a library, I'm like, all of this is free. It's free. I love that so much. God bless the librarians. 
I have a lot of trouble listening to books. I, I have a lot of trouble focusing. So I admire your ability to do that. So mostly I try and listen to things that have nothing to do with anything. So like I listen to a lot of YA and I listen to, you know, just kind of easy novels. So I've recently gotten into this author, Kevin Wilson, and I listened to two of his novels. One is called Now is Not the Time to Panic and one is called Nothing to See Here. And I recommend both of them so much. And I recommend the audio version because the actors were just phenomenal. Now I'm listening to another book of his, The Fang Family. They, They don't have anything to do with animals, right? No, I'm just you just liked it. You just but liked it. I did read I just want to clarify. I also was reading and by reading I mean listening to a a very you know environmentalist book about about and by an incredible indigenous person, uh Robin Wall Kimmerer. Robin Wall Kimmerer is an indigenous person. The book is called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's a very well known book. Yeah, I, I read that book. Yeah. It took me a long time to get through it. Well, I was listening to it and I did have to listen in, in fits and spurts. And I, I'm in this this DEI book group and it's not a book group with vegans. But I, and so we go to have the discussion about it. And I, you know, it's weird. It's like I was sleep deprived or something because usually I'm very on top of my messaging as a vegan. Like usually I'm very much like, here's what you say. Here's what you don't. Here's how you say it. Here's how you don't. Like, this is how you work a room. It's all, it's like, it's like my nature to be like that. And I wasn't like that at all. So within the the kind of complicated context of discussing an indigenous person's experiences, I found myself being critical of, of her like eating animals and like thinking that they, they gave their lives for, for us. And I just couldn't have this discussion without having an objection to that even though I also wanted to make clear that I, I respect her culture. Yeah, it's a great book. And she's a botanist, I think a botanist. And whenever she's talking yes, about plants, botanist. it's amazing. And I agree. And she doesn't talk about animals a lot. But when she talks about animals, I was I was uncomfortable. It's bad, right. Yeah. And so I decided I'm going to read it anyway, because there's so much I want to get from this book. And there's so much I got from this book. And I don't know why I went into that discussion. Because that's who you are. That you're like, Is it? I mean, it is who I am, but it's not who I am to like, kind of just be blunt and like, not read the room. Like I could have probably done it in a slightly more, you know, massaged way. But now I feel uncomfortable. Like I put myself out there. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Like people already think you're crazy. That's true. Thank you. All right. So speaking of things that make me uncomfortable, I was I was talking to someone recently and we realized we both have an Ahimsa tattoo. Now I am covered with tattoos. So that is like on my ankle. It's a very fairly small tattoo relative to the rest of my tattoos. I got it like probably 20 years ago, if not more, if not longer ago. Yeah, you've had that tattoo like, you you had had it a long time when I first yeah, met yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I've had it a very long time. And at the time I got it, I, you know, I, I didn't really think much about it. I didn't think critically about certain issues at the time. But, you know, I was vegan, so. Well, I think that you could think critically about the fact that you thought that Ahimsa was a, you know, it, it meant a lot to you, that concept of, of um, peace and nonviolence. Nonviolence, right. Like, I'm sure you thought yeah. deeply about that. But there was something else that I think is bothering you now that you didn't think as much about. Well, you know, there when a, 
I have been thinking a lot. I think a lot about misappropriation and appropriation and where the line is between appropriation and misappropriation. And when, you know, quite frankly, when our society is making too big of a deal about shared cultural experiences and borrowing from this culture for that culture, which is very common to do, and whether or not we're just becoming like too hypervigilant about that discussion. But then I also recognize that sometimes there is genuine misappropriation that is really inappropriate. And so how do you find the balance? And so I have been accused of having uh, participated in cultural misappropriation by having this Sanskrit tattoo. And so since that happened a few years ago, I've been thinking I'm going to get that covered. I haven't yet because I only get tattoos sometimes. And usually when I get one, I have a really great idea for one and I'm not necessarily going to go cover one. So someone else had it and who that person's also vegan. And I asked them if they've ever had this discussion with anyone else or with themselves. And they said that they, and they're also white like me, and they said that they absolutely do not think it's misappropriation because they're vegan and it's everything they stand by and live by. And I was like, yeah, me too. And then suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, like, where do I, where do I stand on this issue? And so I wanted to know what you thought, since you're the master of all opinions. (laughs) That's a frightening thought. I don't I don't know. I don't like I think it depends. I don't think I mean obviously as you said earlier, cultures mix. People like take things from other cultures and enjoy them. I mean that's part of the great one of the great joys of life. Pretending that you th- that something is yours when it belongs to another culture, that's obviously a problem. I mean I don't think you d- ever pretended that since it's in Sanskrit, that this was from your culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it kind of depends. Like, it kind of depends on the spirit with which it's done. Um, it kind of depends on the power. I, I think can, in some instances, d- depend on the the power of the, of the culture that you are, quote unquote, borrowing from. You know, if, it, if it's a very vulnerable culture, and it, that could be more harm than if it, you know, I, th- I think that Hindu... You've, you've taken it from Hindu culture, which I guess is another religion, and you're not a member of that religion, so that can that can enter into that. I think there's a lot of questions. I don't think there's an easy answer. I saw an article recently that, that said, you know, that indicated worried about whether eating foods from other cultures was misappropriation. I was like, what? No, no way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but, you know, I guess, I guess, Sometimes claiming that those foods are your own or that you invented it, that would be a problem. But I want to be able to continue to eat like whatever, whatever delicious food any culture provides. Well, and also because like it's usually every single cuisine that's not American that is vegan friendly. But uh, I, I mean, customarily, historically, traditionally, I will say that we can as we're eating Ethiopian food, as we're eating whatever type of food we're enjoying, we can pay homage to the culture, you know, that we're, so that we're being consistent. And I'm going to throw myself under the bus for a second, because I feel like when I told you that story a few minutes ago about how I was like super blunt in that book group, maybe, maybe this is like the new me, like maybe I'm going to stop editing so much because I get, I, I get a little bit nervous about saying the wrong thing. I'm I'm scared of cancel culture. I'm scared of, uh, you know, someone posting something that they don't like about me. It scares me, but I kind of don't care as much, I guess, because I want to be myself 
And especially in these spaces where I can be, since I have to really guard what I'm saying, like when I'm hosting my radio show, for example, it's not about my opinion, it's about my hosting. So it's not like I can pop up on there and say all the things I care about deeply. So I will throw myself under the bus. Now I'm 43. I got my first tattoo on my 18th birthday. It was a star. It was a cute little star. I was in Philadelphia on South Street. Uh, it was, it's, it's actually in my first book, Always Too Much and Never Enough, there is a whole chapter about this experience and how tattooing really opened up my world. My second tattoo, which I also got when I was 18 without thinking about it, was a Chinese symbol that I, I like got covered up a few years later, but it was a Chinese symbol that meant star. So I had this idea that I would get stars all over my body. I was 18, forgive me. And then a couple years later, I was like, what have I done? And I got it covered and it's this beautiful cow. And I've had this beautiful cow now for also probably 20 something years. But that that star to me was total misappropriation. It was like, I knew nothing about the Chinese culture. I was just using a symbol. It, it could have meant fuck you for all I know. I don't like read the language. I don't know if it actually said star. And it was just vacant like of me to get it. So then years later when I got the Sanskrit, it, it it felt much more personal, like this person had told me. So no. I don't know. Maybe there's not an answer. Well, I I think that, you know, that's kind of the point that it depends. Right. There, there's not an easy answer. Like the idea that we can never, never refer to or or even use in some benign way the wisdom and, and symbols of another culture is kind of sad, like that and impossible. I mean, that's never gonna happen. Cultures have always mixed and matched. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears because I wanted to briefly chat about this horrible article. (laughs) Sorry, but it was in the New York Times and it's called Alone and Exploited. Migrant children work brutal jobs across the U.S. This is not a fun article. Yeah, I just I also just wanted to mention this article before we before we get to the interview, because I think it's really important. It's not specifically about about animals or even specifically about the meat industry. It's about the, the fact that there are all of these children unaccompanied coming coming to the United States because their families are in desperate straits and they can get in as unaccompanied minors. So they are sent here on their own, you know, 12, 13-year-old kids. And then they, they are released to these quote-unquote sponsors, many of whom are unscrupulous, and they need to get jobs. That's what they're here for. They're here because their families are desperate and they need to send money home. You know, they get enrolled in schools because there's some kind of oversight, but they end up not going to school or or it's really, really hard for them to go to school. And they just end up going to these jobs. And like, I don't know, like so far, this is just, what do you what do you even do about this? But the really, like, the kicker here is the jobs they get are the worst jobs in America. And a lot of those, I mean, really dangerous, horrible jobs that include a lot of them in the food industry and a lot of them in slaughterhouses and factory farms, just the, the worst of the worst. And I just, like, who have we become that, that this is how, this is what we do? Uh, you know, I'm not saying I know the answer, but, but this for sure ain't it. Uh, it's just a horrifying situation. Yeah, I'll add that for people who don't care about animals, which, you know, that's bullshit. But for people who just, you know, just will not look at the issue of the fact that they're consuming tortured body parts of 
marginalized individuals, for those people, you tend to be able to still get them on like telling them what's going on with humans. And, and so maybe bringing this up in conversation, maybe this is the kind of thing we can post and, and it can reach people who wouldn't otherwise be reached if we're posting about just the animals. Because obviously, it's not either or for animal activists. Like we care about all animals, whether they're human or not. And in this case, the animals are children and the humans are children. <laughs> so it's it's definitely something that I think I'm very glad that it got out there. And I, I wonder if it will connect the dots for people about the, the types of situations they are supporting. Yeah, it's certainly not, as I said, it's certainly not just the meat industry. They're just a major player because, of course, they are an industry that has a really, really high percentage of absolutely horrifying jobs that nobody else wants. So, yeah, that the, these children are particularly vulnerable to getting caught up in that kind of an, an industry. That's where they can get jobs. It's just a terrible situation. Very, very long, complex article about a situation that I think, you know, I... I mean, it's not like I didn't think there was anything bad going on with with immigrant children. I had no idea, no idea. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll link to it in the show notes. All right. So, lastly, before we get to our interview, I just wanted to remind our listeners that our hen house is on Mighty Networks now, so that is a community platform, and you can join us by going to ourhenhouse.mn. That's for Mighty Networks. .co. Again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. And ask to join the network if you are, uh, if you want to join it. We'll let you in. We want you to be part of our discussion. But we do have a flock section that is only for flock members. So if you're able to join the flock, please do consider that. And you get a whole bunch of other perks too, including bonus content each week and flock Friday conversations and time with me to talk about your veganism or your activism and other fun things too. But we did have a celebration, a launch party. It was funny. I was like, why are we having a launch party when we've been on the air for 13 years? Because we felt so excited about joining Mighty Networks that we threw a party last weekend. It was so much fun. Thank you to everyone who attended. It was virtual. Jean Bauer spoke. Mike Kaplan had me crying with laughter, by the way. He's so funny. And so the recording will be available on the Let's Get Squawking channel of Mighty Network. So you can check it out, maybe put it on in the background because we we discussed some really cool stuff there. So again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. All right, let's get to the interview. Galena Hale is a professor of economics at UC Santa Cruz, who has been recently working on ways that economists can inform policymakers on how to make the food system more sustainable. She serves on editorial boards of a number of economics journals and on multiple boards and committees in animal welfare and animal agriculture spaces. David Meyer is the co-founder and CEO of Food System Innovations and Humane America Animal Foundation. He is also a trustee for the Food System Research Fund. David also co-founded and ran AdoptAPet.com for 22 years, and he spearheaded many other efforts on behalf of companion animals. He's the co-author of the books Total Dog Manual and Total Cat Manual. I love that. That's so cute. As well as a nine-time world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the author of several books on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He also co-founded an orphanage in Haiti for children with HIV and serves on the board of Tough Love Fitness, a nonprofit that provides accessible and affordable self-defense, martial arts, and fitness training for underserved populations. They will be joining Marianne right after this. 
social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make Our Hen House part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to Our Hen House, Galena and David. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It is a pleasure to have you. I met you, Galena, a while back at some conference, and I've been wanting to have you, and I didn't even know about David. And wow, you guys are the power couple of the animal rights movement. So I'm so excited to have both of you on. You're doing so many different things, and a lot of them are encompassed within this organization called Food Systems Innovations. And just for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, can you just kind of give us the elevator speech of what Food Systems Innovations is trying to do? And then we'll go back and get into some detail. Sure, I will do that. So thank you again, uh, Marianne, for having us. So Food System Innovations is a nonprofit organization that is working to reform the global food system to remove animals from the food system for the benefit of the animals, of course, for the benefit of human health, for the benefit of climate, for the benefit of all the great benefits that would happen to the extent we can remove animals from certainly the industrial human food system. And so we do many different things. We have Galena, as you'll discuss in a moment, is an economist. And so we kind of look at the food system as an economic system. So where can we help raise the cost of animal uh, inputs or cause governments to stop artificially depressing the cost? Where can we, of course, reducing demand is something that everybody's always been working for a long time, getting more people to consume less, and very specifically trying to work on alternatives and giving people alternatives that the average people will like, like plant-based meats, things like that, and even some of the higher technology things to see if that can give people options so that they can move away. And then we also do a lot of foundational work where we we have some fellowships, we support organizations, we do do some granting, we run the Food System Research Fund, which Galena and several other people run for funding social science research. We support scientific research into animal alternative foods. And yeah, we're just doing everything we can to try to plug any gap that we see. Looking at the website, I mean, I just find what you're doing really exciting. And one of the reasons is, I mean, as you point out, you're doing a lot of different things, but a lot of it has to do with supporting research in a lot of different areas. And it has always alarmed me that there is this enormous research disparity in universities, but I guess in other places as well, not an area I'm that familiar with, between what the meat industry is able to get done and what we or anybody who's interested in replacing the meat industry is <laughs> able to get done. They just own this world with land-grant universities and, and whatever. Can you talk about that a little bit, about this disparity? So maybe I can take this one. So I am at the university, and it's true that the animal ag sector was able to partner with a lot of universities over many years to really work on their productivity of their industrial output. And that, unfortunately, productivity of animal agriculture is you know, negatively affecting animals' welfare, as we know. It's also true that the government's support in terms of research was largely directed to animal ag as well. Over many years, there is a research paper coming out of NYU that shows that 
in terms of the support of yield improvements research across different crops from USDA, most of the support was going to wheat, soy, and corn, which is the main staple foods for the animals. So they really supported yields for animal feed, but nothing in terms of legumes or pulses that we're relying on right now for alternative proteins. And that creates this problem that, you know, if you have a farmer who is now involved in animal farming with very high yields on the field and all kinds of subsidies that the government is providing, and you go to them and you say, why don't you convert to producing peas, say, so you can sell the peas to beyond burger production, right? They're going to say no, because the yields on peas are so low that I'm not going to be profitable. And that's partly because there was no support from the government for the yield improvements in this kind of crops that we're looking at now for alternative proteins. And that's also a reason why so much of alternative proteins are relying on soy and wheat gluten, because these are just cheaper inputs because it's coming from the same sources as animal feed. Wow. I already, I'm learning a lot. I always think I know everything. And then I have guests on who know so much more than I do. And I learn all this stuff. All right. Let's talk a little bit about food system innovations and break down some of the different projects that you're working on. Can we start with the Sustainable Protein Innovation Institute? Can you tell us about the function of that? Sure. So when Galena and I were, you know, I've worked in the animal welfare arena for many, many years. And it was really about six or seven years ago that I really wanted to pivot and get back into the farm animal specifically. I had spent a lot of time working on things with companion animals. And Galena was very interested as well in getting more involved, coming from sort of an environmental approach. And when I started to meet a lot of the people who've been working and doing such great work, we were hearing two different stories that seemed to be maybe at odds. One was saying, isn't it amazing? These new plant-based things like Beyond and Impossible, they're fantastic. They're just like meat. And then we were also hearing that oh, we need more research. We need more research to lower prices or different crops or different inputs. And that's certainly something the Good Food Institute, who we were closely was talking about. So we ran a taste test. We said, well, which is it? And we actually ran a professional taste test with 100 meat eaters, both for chicken and burger, to determine are the current products out there really great analogs in terms of the taste and texture? And it turns out they basically weren't. There were a few standouts certainly impossible and beyond as we know. And so where we came down on that is there's some really great products out there now for, I mean, vegans don't need any of them. They're just fun for us, right? But for people who right, are really- right. No, this is for the other people. Yes. For people who are trying to reduce meat for some reason, that message has gotten through to them. They're trying them depending upon how they're trying them. It's not meeting their taste or satisfaction. Maybe it's not meeting their nutritional satisfaction, certainly not meeting price. And so what's needed is a, a real kind of a Manhattan project on research, the kind of research that Galena is saying the government has not been doing at all levels in universities. And so universities are now starting to do some research, again, with, through a lot of the great work of the Good Food Institute. But the university research is fairly you know, basic and there's academic freedom and we can't really control exactly what they're going to chase down. And then you have companies that are doing their own research, like some of the startups, but they are very risk averse and they don't have the deep pockets to go down real scientific rabbit holes. So there's a gap in having a nonprofit entity that can really do the deep research into new kinds of proteins and how to combine them and how to get the flavors better and how to create new production inputs across all of the different technologies, the extrusion of plant-based stuff, the 
precision fermentation that's coming on now and even cultivated meat being grown from cells to do that in a way where we're not risk averse, we can hire the best people, we can get it done, we can hopefully do it in an open source way so all can benefit from it. And that's where the Sustainable Protein Innovation Institute comes in. So it's a new nonprofit we're setting up. It's a partnership between Food System Innovations, Good Food Institute, and the Bryson Family Foundation being supported by Accenture, which is a big consulting firm and looking to have both a dedicated facility that we're fundraising for now and research hubs at different universities at some of the major universities around the world. So that is the hope and vision of the Sustainable Protein Innovation Institute. How far along are you? We have a very detailed business plan we've worked along for now. We have a number of top world universities that are very, very interested in working with us. And now it's just a matter of securing the funding. We're talking to some very major movers in the funding world. And perhaps Galena will talk a little bit more about this, but she's an Accenture about to come out with what I think will be a very transformative bit of research on addressing specifically how quickly we have to replace animal agriculture to meet Paris climate goals. And I'm pretty confident that once that gets out there and Accenture starts to push it, that will open the doors to some of the major climate funders like Bezos, Gates Foundation, Schmidt Futures, and things like that. When you go to universities, and you said there's a lot of interest in universities, like does that interest come along with an expectation that that you will be providing funding? Is that a key to having this research done at universities? Yes. Yeah, they need funding. They have faculty and staff. But if someone comes along and says, I want to start an initiative or in our case, an actual center, it requires a large commitment of funding. And then they will bring together top people at their university. They may hire new people. There may be people already working in adjacent areas who will want to now focus their research into the tasks of the new of the, the new focus of the new center. But yes, at the end of the day, like so many things in our world, it all comes down to money. Yeah. And I would say that's the same thing what Galena was addressing herself to. It's no accident that the animal agriculture is so well entrenched in research and with government because they're making money from what they do. And it's, of course, a, a cycle that the more money they make, the more money they can put into supporting candidates. That's why we also support an organization, work closely with the FSA, which is Food Solutions Action, which is a C4 organization that also has a PAC, so that now the animal side is contributing to politicians. And that really does get their ears. I'm sad to say, I'm happy to say for the animals, but I'm sad to say that's the system in which we live. But so for the first time, really now, senators, congresspeople of both parties are really getting to talk about this issue and the importance of changing the food system. And I've been a part of that. And Food Solutions Action is leading that, and hopefully we can start to turn the tide a little bit on the support and the funding that goes to universities. Yeah, and I apologize for not being able to follow the names of all of them, but Food Solutions Action, did you say that was an industry? No, it's a C4, which is a nonprofit organization that doesn't pay profit off of its income, but you don't get a deduction, a tax deduction for donating to them because they operate politically. And they also have an associated PAC which actually, which is definitely not, you know, you can't make a deduction because it is, they are donating to Congress people and senators and also at the state level. Your listeners can find them on the web. I wasn't sure where that funding was coming. I just got confused about where that funding was coming from because the industry does at least pretend to put a little interest into this side. Do you think that any of that interest is sincere? 
you know, I, I get my copy of Alt Meat from the Meeting Place people every every month, and they seem to like really be promoting this, and they're all putting money into it and then taking money out of it. Do you think that's a viable source of interest and fun- funding for this kind of alternative research? Well, Galena will probably have something to say on this, but I can say that similar to what we saw in the energy sector, where Exxon and Chevron, you know, they made certain investments into alternative energy forms, it wasn't. I don't think anyone really thinks at this point that it was because they wanted to advance them. In fact, in some cases, they probably wanted to destroy them, but they certainly wanted to hedge their bets. And my understanding, uh, knowing some people at major meat companies, is it's a similar thing. They're not there necessarily because they want to hurt animals. They're there because they want to make money. And if they think the world is going to pivot to less meat, they want to be right at the forefront of that. And that's fine if they're at the forefront of that. That That's even great if they could speed it along. Their sincerity with what we're seeing with the drop in sales recently of plant-based meats, some of those meat companies are pulling back on their offerings in that space. So I think it's fair to say, and again, Galena would know a lot more about this than I do, that they're going to want to protect their interests. And if their interests align with an expanding industry, they will do that, but they're probably not going to lead the way, I would think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I really want to get, you've opened up so many different doors of inquiry, particularly, I do want to talk about, as I think you put it, the recent drop in interest in these products. And I really want to talk about that and what's going on. But I started out to talk about different pieces of what you're doing, and we only got as far as the Sustainable Protein Innovation Institute. (laughs) So I know there's more. People will be astounded to hear that's not all that you're trying to do. So another project, I think, is the Food System Research Fund. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I can talk about this. So we started Food System Research Fund a few years ago with a donation from one major donor to fund research into, you know, what would it take to replace a substantial portion of animal products in the global food system with more sustainable and animal-friendly alternatives? So we are now continuing to fund this program as a FSI, and it's mostly social science research that we fund. We have a number of requests for proposals, and people submit their proposals that we fund. And that actually comes from all over the world. So we had a few studies done in China that we funded on what are the consumer's interests in different alternatives. Do people see soy milk as a substitute for dairy milk? What kind of meat is consumed in China, which, you know, I was surprised to find out that it's not predominantly pork, which is what we think with our stereotypes. You know, it was true of maybe 20 years ago, but the new generation doesn't want to eat their grandmother's food. They want to eat what Western people eat. And so chicken is the most consumed animal in China these days in the form of KFC and similar kind of, and dairy is consumed a lot in desserts. And so this is kind of findings that the research we sponsor has delivered. We have also people who apply, they work either as independent researchers or they work for some think tank kind of organizations, or they might be affiliated with universities. So we had, it's kind of a broad net and all the requests for proposals are on our website. And so we have a pretty active research agenda right now. So you're sort of a conduit, is that right? That you seek the funding and then you also seek the projects and the researchers and you kind of marry these folks together and create the confidence in the funders that that they will be funding a useful project. Is that 
Not exactly. That's how it started. Okay. But right now, most of the funds are coming from FSI, so from us directly. So we're not seeking additional funding. If somebody approaches us with like a research question that we think fits well in our scope of interests, then we could serve as a conduit. But we as a fund, the people who are running the fund, we're thinking about the questions that we think are important to be answered. And then we solicit proposals in those fields and that we decide which ones need to be funded. And I would just add, in the larger sense, the broader programs of FSI, we do have our own funding. So we're, as Galena mentioned, we are not in need of fundraising for ourselves. But when we launch a new program like SPII, the Sustainable Protein Innovation Institute, that's where then we need to partner with other funders. And there are certainly major funders in the space who don't have the time to maybe think about what are the most important things. And we do regrant directly to some organizations. So they might make large donations to us and then let us use our best judgment to figure out where to distribute that money. So we're somewhere in between where we can be a funder ourselves and we are also a doer of activities ourselves. So we're somewhere in between right. your average nonprofit and your funding entity. Right. It really is a fascinating model. And I can see how it is obviously developed as you've gone along to add new aspects. When you, you are obtaining funding and, and motivating researchers to do this kind of work, is climate the main driver behind who is funding this work? You know, it's always been a little hard, except for a few major contributors to get money to help animals. But so is climate really the keystone here? So David, maybe I can start on that. So I think David mentioned briefly that we are trying to get climate money to get interested in animal agriculture. So far, my understanding, that is kind of minimal. And so that's the research paper that David mentioned that I'm working with Accenture on that would show that in order for us to achieve Paris goals, we need to substitute away from animal agriculture really soon. So the model we have to calculate that is very sensitive to when we are starting to replace animal-based foods with alternatives. And basically, to meet the Paris goals and to be within our carbon budget to meet the Paris goals, we pretty much need to have a parity of the alternatives to the products that we're trying to substitute as early as possible. I would say 2023 would be good. And parity means parity in terms of price, taste. Right. If you think about how do you get consumers to switch what they're buying, it needs to be a better product or at least it needs to be as good a product if you then compare it with advocacy and explain why people should switch. But there shouldn't be any barriers to switching. And so that's what we call parity point. And if we can get to that parity point in the next two years and then we can really ramp up the alternatives then we can actually meet Paris goals by, you know, we can phase out animal ag by 2050. And that, we, that would really reduce the carbon use by food systems by about 30%. And it's by far the largest intervention you can do in the food system. You know, you can work on food waste, on yield improvements and other things, but removing animal agriculture from the equation is by far the biggest reduction we can get from the food system in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so once we have this paper ready to go and we start publicizing the results, I think we can get attention of climate funders to well, this How question. do you count for the, I mean, I know this and you know this, probably everybody listening knows this is really bad and a huge contributor. How do you account for the fact that 
I mean, is it psychological or is it just the, you know, people have been focused so much on fossil fuels and other issues, but do you think there is a psychological aspect, the same psychological aspect that just on a micro level creates people who just don't look at this issue, otherwise good people who just don't look at this issue? Is the same thing happening at a macro level on the climate? I have two thoughts on this. I think one is, yes, look, it is hard for people to say, I am part of the problem. So you, you've seen this, you know, climate only recently are climate conventions and even things, you know, that Galena goes to even serving vegan options, let alone right. just serving all vegan food. And that is certainly because of what people are used to. And it's easier to say, oh, let's all recycle or let's all go to solar when we're doing that rather than to say, wow, some basic, you know, for all the reasons that we know, it's hard to change diet. Some basic part of my psychological structure and family history and cultural history is actually now unfortunately creating a problem. So I think there is that, but I also think there's that tendency to, you know, I think of the story of the person who in the dark is at the foot of a street lamp searching on their hands and knees and someone says, what are you looking for? And they said, I'm looking for my keys. And they said, where did you drop them? And they said, oh, way far over there. And they said, well, why are you looking here, you know, next to the street lamp? Because that's where the light is, right? So I think, you know, we know that energy, it's easy to understand that energy and replacing with renewable energies is a, is a solution for the problem. There's no real easy answer for the food system problem because there aren't really good yet alternatives. And so, and in the same way that you saw over decades of government intervention to support research into finally getting the price of alternative energy down, and that's easy to switch to because people don't care where their lights are getting lighted from. We need that same kind of government support now to hit this other less obvious thing, but as Galena mentioned, very important thing, which is food systems. So I think it's just a matter of it's not as easy a thing, so people haven't gravitated towards it. How do you approach the climate question regarding the impact of eggs and poultry? I mean, you mentioned that, which I, I guess I'm stuck with stereotypes too, because I thought the major meat in China was pork, but you're telling me it's, it's poultry. And, you know, the climate impact of eggs and poultry is a lot less than other meats. And is there a temptation on a lot of part, on the part of a lot of policymakers here to think that that's the switch? That's what we need to do? So maybe I'll take this one. So, so I have a little bit, an additional kind of take also on your previous question. Why is, why is that we do energy oh, sure. and we don't talk about food? And I think when people think greenhouse gas emissions, they pretty much think CO2. But that's only like 60 to 70% of the story because we also have methane and people are also familiar with methane. And so they think, okay, we're going to switch away from beef. For some reason, they don't think we need to switch away from dairy. It comes from the same species, but it is what it is. And then, then there is also nitrous oxide. And nitrous oxide is 100 times more potent in terms of entrapping greenhouse gases compared to CO2. And even though there's less concentration of it in the atmosphere, it contributes to global warming a lot. And a lot of nitrous oxide comes from poultry manure. It also comes from all the fertilizers we're putting into the animal feed, because when we produce animal feed, the restrictions on how much you can put in it is, are less strict than with human-grade food. And so that produces a lot of nitrous oxide and also the production of those fertilizers by itself is also producing as a lot of CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions. So in the calculations we do for the CO2 equivalent of all the greenhouse gas emissions, poultry and eggs don't look so great either. 
they still are a lot more, have a lot more impact on climate than any alternative you can come up with. So is there recognition of this factor? Probably not yet. But I think there is more. So, you know, in uh, United Nations publications on climate, you know, you now have very clear statement that the food system needs to change. Yeah. And so there is a recognition of that. So I think it's coming. We're kind of at the beginning of this. And so it's now a good time to do more education, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a good time, <laughs> like, like any minute now. So another project, if I'm analyzing your, your website correctly, and I want you to fill in if I'm not mentioning things that you're excited about doing, but you mentioned that you're helping promising but underfunded NGOs, which I think is really, really important work. You know, it's so hard for startup companies and even more so for startup NGOs of great ideas to to really attract funders. Is that right? And if it is, what are you looking for? There's so many people doing great work all around the world. And a lot of it is concentrated in the United States and certainly in the West. And we need a thousand times more of that. But particularly in developing areas where there has been no Mercy for Animals and no Humane Society in the United States and no PETA and That is where we think, well, um, going from nothing to something, and there are very talented people there trying to do work and who maybe can start in a more advanced position than we did because they can maybe learn where culturally appropriate some of the lessons that we've learned, if that applies in their culture. So we are particularly interested in finding really promising, and it's fine if they're small NGOs or people who want to start NGOs in foreign countries, people women-run, indigenous-run is a particular interest for us, but ultimately we just want to get more good people in the game and in places where there hasn't been much done. And one of the things that is talked about in Galena and Accenture's paper is the projected growth of animal consumption worldwide. And much of that growth, if not even most of that growth, is in the developing world. It's not that the U.S. is going to start doubling and tripling the amount of meat we're eating anytime soon, but China is. No, but China, (laughs) (laughs) China is. It's great that people in China are coming out of poverty and that they have more money and that they have money to spend now. But of course, meat is associated and animal products is associated with luxury and people want that. And so when we talk about the need to replace global animal agriculture, you know, by 2050 or something, the easiest way to do it is for everybody just to become vegan. I mean, no research needed, just eat good, healthy food. I mean, we, you and I get it, we all get it. But unfortunately, most people are, that is not moving fast enough. And it is definitely not moving fast enough for the developing world where that concept may not even exist. Even in countries where China has a a really good sort of a You could call it a flexitarian base where they eat a lot of vegetables. They eat tofu in the same dishes where they eat meat. And this is happening in India too. The younger generation, they are not looking to increase their vegetable content. They are looking to increase their meat. And it's very hard for us to do advocacy there. It's certainly hard in China because of the government control to try to convince people of doing anything. And so that's where the the hope is, well, okay, alternative proteins, things that look and taste like what people want will succeed there. But there aren't even entrepreneurs there. So We think that a good way to start that is to get NGOs or people working in these countries, get them supported. And of course, a dollar goes a long way in in some of these societies. So it can be very cost effective. So that's what we're particularly looking for. And we network with people around the world and to find the best people and we try to support them. And 
We also provide coaching support to all nonprofits, including those in the United States, just how to run your nonprofit maybe more efficiently, how to set goals, how to be more strategic. Things that I've learned in my experience that I want to give over to younger people. Your audience can't see me now, but I'm an old guy. I'll be the judge of that. Okay. So we don't, but we, you know, why shouldn't the younger generations learn, learn, you know, people get into NGOs because they're passionate and that is beautiful. You need that passionate, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're skilled. And it certainly doesn't mean they have a lifetime of experience doing other things. And then when you try in it as an NGO to bring someone in who has a lifetime of experience doing other things, usually can't afford to pay their salary and they can't make their home payment because they have a life that is built on what they're used to being paid. So we really are trying to help fast track the education and the professional, you know, operational abilities of people in the movement wherever we can. Yeah, I, I think that's such incredibly powerful work. We have actually, I mean, we're always trying to find new people to interview doing new things. And we've happened to interview a number of people in Africa in recent months, just doing extraordinary work and such tiny organizations and both working, you know, for animal advocacy, but also for advocating for plant-based diets. It's so moving and they're working with so few resources. It's just such powerful work. And, you know, Africa is a place where not that Factory farming hasn't taken hold at all, but you know, it hasn't taken hold as well as it has in other parts of the world. So one yeah. would think there might be a way to turn it around. And, you know, of course, the diet is just, well, I'm I'm going through all these other <laughs> just such a subject I'm interested in. But the diet is so colonial. The traditional diets are so healthy. It's just so frustrating. But moving on from that, I I, I have so many questions I want to ask you. And this one I, I have to ask you. What is the smart money on? Is it plant-based, cellular, fermented, mycelium, or are you going to come up with something else? Can I take this, David? Sure. So my answer to a lot of questions that people ask is the same. It's all of the above. And the reason for that, so think about impossible, which is probably, you know, if you ask people to rank plant-based burgers would be the closest to what people think meat's supposed to taste. And that's partly because there is a precision fermentation component in that plant-based burger. That's how heme is produced and then added. So I think we want to take the best from each technology and combine that into a final product. And that's how we're going to end up with cheap and good product. And not for everything, obviously. You know, maybe completely plant-based for chicken nuggets is going to do well. Or maybe we need to add some cellular grown chicken cells to make it really taste like chicken. So, so I think we're still not quite there in terms of cost and taste, as David said in the beginning. And so I think it would take all of the above. And potentially, I strongly believe something we don't even know yet about to, to get to that parity. But I don't know if David agrees 100%. <laughs> oh, controversy. <laughs> uh, we are married, so we better not disagree too strongly or, or there's going to be problems when we get home. No, I, I agree 100%. I think it's very, first of all, I think we as humans tend to want to kind of encapsulate everything. Like people want this, people want that. When anyone ever says that, it's like, there's a lot of people in the world. There's some people who will want to eat, eat this. There's some people want to eat that. There's people in China. There's people in Indonesia. There's people in Sub-Saharan Africa. There's people in New York. I mean, it's a big world with a lot of different things and a lot of different factors. So I think it's not going to be any one technology and you know, necessarily that can do the perfect thing, but it is very likely going to be some hybrid of something that is originating in plants, 
Maybe we'll be able to discover things that require less processing because, you know, as Galena mentioned, because the inputs are so inexpensive for soy and wheat gluten, a lot of products tend to be made of that. And that works, you know, well enough. I mean, there's certain allergy concerns, but we're using extrusion, which is this kind of antiquated technology, just giant ovens to try to spin out textures. And perhaps if we could find plants or create plants. I never used to be into genetically modified stuff, but I'm much more open to it now, now that I see the possibilities there, to be honest. But I understand why people would be concerned about that though. But if we can find or create plants that require less processing, that just are meatier without even, you know, adding in additives and things like that, we could potentially get to things like Galena mentioned, some, maybe some fat coming from cellular production. I think it'll probably be hybrid technologies. Yeah, what's the story on cellular production? I mean, for the past like 10 years, it's been two years away. Is it well, now see, two years away? I'm, <laughs> I'm Jewish and we've been, we've been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. Although Galena, who's Catholic, would tell me uh, the, wait, the wait ended a long time you ago. Missed, you missed yeah. it. <laughs> but but um, no, I think we do need to acknowledge that startups do need to tell a certain story to get to the next round of funding. I don't think people are being dishonest, but they need to be maximally optimistic because they need that funding to keep coming. But that said, we just had Upside Foods, formerly Memphis Meats, get the, be the first company to get FDA approval in the United States. We've already had Eat Just with approval of Chick for Chicken in Singapore. So it is here. I mean, cellular meats are here. They're just not at scale. They're not at price. And we are talking about things that they don't yet have the structure. So it's much easier to produce something like a ground beef where cells don't have to be organized in the way as you do for like a whole cut steak or something like that. So we're a ways away on that, but, and we're certainly, you know, Mission Barnes has, has fats and things like that that really are there right now. They just waiting FDA approval will probably be the next one to get it here in the United States. So cultivated meat is here. It's just not here at the scale and at the price that it's going to make a difference yet, but it will eventually get there. It needs more R&D, more funding, more government support. And let's get back to that issue that came up before and I wanted to revisit, you know, where are we now and what's going on and are we in trouble? Because I I read a lot of industry articles, which is always fun, and they all seem to be touting the idea that alternative proteins, they had their moment in the sun and it was a big deal and now they are occupying a very small niche and that's where they're going to stay. And I keep trying to say that, yeah, it's like the internet. When the internet started off, there was a, you know a million startups. Most of them failed. Amazon didn't. <laughs> it's the only one that didn't fail. But then things grew. You know, things things start off with a big bang and then move back and then really start the actual growth. So who's right or are either of us right? Are we disappointed about where we are right now? So let me give you my take on this. So starting from the end, I think we are a little bit disappointed with the lack of growth or slow growth in the market share plant-based alternatives, especially meat alternatives. I think the milk is doing better. We were hoping for better, but I kind of agree with you. It's not really the reason for despair, and it's not the reason for lack of investment in the industry. I think there's some truth to the narrative that, you know, they grew really fast in the beginning because every vegan wanted to try one, and then they wanted to give one to their non-vegan friend. And and so this kind of initial curiosity fueled some growth, and now they've kind of stabilized at the plateau because they've reached their constituency and other people don't care. There is another, the supply side of the story is also some of those plant-based alternatives, they've grown 
to the scale that they could with a, you know, hedge fund kind of money. And now if they want to increase their capacity, they need to invest in something that's completely uninteresting, like, you know, co-packing facility. And it's a natural development of the industry that the initial return on investment might be high or might appear high because of the really fast growth. But then it kind of slows down to like what the normal return on investment is, where hedge funds are no longer interested, but the products don't have enough of a track record to go to conventional financing, right? And so it's a little bit of a doldrums, if you will, in the industry growth that I think every industry kind of goes through like this growing pains. And that's where a lot of creative destruction happens so that some companies will not continue and hopefully some companies will. But I think I would say I'm not pessimistic, but I'm a little bit cautiously optimistic because we do need to give a push to the industry to allow for that fast growth. And so if I guess you say one more thing is that this specific thing that we're trying to do is replacing something that people are already happy with in terms of their consumption basket with something that we think is better for the world is a little bit unprecedented. Because, you know, when you have a new product that's satisfying some new need, like, you know, a internet search engine, there is going to be growing demand for that. As soon as people learn about it, they're going to use it. We're pushing a little bit uphill in terms of trying to tell people to discontinue consuming something and replace it with something else. It's a bit of a harder battle, and I don't think we had it done on a scale like that. On this, like global food system is probably the biggest industry there is. And so I think we need a lot of help from the government and nonprofits and all of the above. You know, whatever people are doing in animal space, we need it. Yeah, that's for sure. One of the industry's big arguments for why it's quote unquote failing is that plant-based products are unhealthy because they're processed and have a long list of ingredients. And I really love your take on this. I tend to always say that that meat is processed. It's, it's grain that's processed through the body of an animal. Um, so I like to think of it as processed food, but your take on it is much more sophisticated. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I loved it. Yeah. So I would say, first of all, there it is in the interest of the, you know, meat industry, the incumbent industry to say, oh, okay, I guess, you know, our product is great and this other thing is failing or whatever. I'm not pessimistic. It's not failing at all. This is the normal trajectory, like you said, Marianne, of a new thing where there's initial excitement, initial adoption, curiosity. Some people are happy with it, some people less happy with it, and then it sort of flattens. You also have a meat industry that is creating that false narrative that you just said that people are concerned about where they're comparing apples and oranges, right? So they're saying long ingredient list. I'm sorry, if you pick up <laughs> so many products in the grocery store, just any product, and look at, you'll see a very long ingredient list. I mean, someone was looking at a potato salad the other day, and by the time you looked at the mayonnaise and the preservatives and the salt and the, and the spices and the stuff, there was a very long ingredient list, and it's all processed. Pretty much anything that, it, that, you, that isn't in the produce section, the fresh produce section, is processed. I think you're exactly right that we people think of meat as meat. They don't understand that the animal is a very inefficient factory for producing the muscle that we call meat. And it has inputs and it has terrible inputs and terrible externalities, you know, fecal matter and hair and eyeballs and things like that. 
And that's where the promise of these new industries, these new all proteins are coming from, where we can just produce the thing we want without all the extra stuff we don't really want. But I think the there has been a very concerted and successful effort from the meat industry, especially in the US, to level that charge. And I think the plant-based foods industry has not done as good a job as they can do to defend themselves against it. And I think part of that is because the industry itself is not exactly united. Um, you do have plant-based meat companies that are calling themselves clean label. And so they're embracing that, yeah, they, it's not good to have a long ingredient list and look at us, we're better, but they don't taste as much like meat. And then the ones like Impossible Beyond that may have a bit more processing um, are trying to replicate meat for people who are walking into KFC who are probably not that concerned about their health. So to say, like no one is saying that a plant-based meat by virtue of the fact that it's a plant-based meat is a health food along the lines of like a lentil loaf. That's not, you know, that's, we're not trying to replace lentil loaf. We're trying to replace meat that has cholesterol and antibiotic residue and pesticide concentration and all kinds of connections with cancer. That's what that needs to be compared to. And that's where even the most quote unquote processed of any plant-based meat is still healthier than the thing it is trying to replace. There's no question about that. But people aren't going to magically know that unless the plant-based industry can step out and effectively say it in ways to counter that. It, and you may have found on our website, I don't know if you saw it, on the fsi.org website, we have a little section for resources and in there are graphics. And if you scroll down, you will see our take on the ingredient list for a ground beef burger or for chicken. And we just broke it out like you want to see the ingredients and we got a chemist to tell us what the ingredients are. And it's plenty long, but cows and chickens don't come with that on it because they're not required to show that. So it is a yeah. PR fight that we have, but I don't think it's not a truthful claim. Yes, there are you know, fewer ingredients or less processing is healthy. I mean, bread is processed. When you look at flour, I mean, mostly what plant-based foods are is bread. It's flour, a powder, an oil cooked together, flavored and seasoned. Look at what focaccia is. So I think people who where that resonates with are not really thinking it through, but we can't blame them for that. The industry, our industry, the plant-based foods industry needs to do a better job of defending themselves against these wrong claims. Yeah, it really is a shame that there's such a disparity in what is required to be on the labels of these foods. Uh, I mean, no wonder people are deceived. So there are really a lot of reasons for why people just don't see this horror. From your point of view, what are some of the human behavioral characteristics and biases that, that we need to overcome in order to shift this market? So I think there is a, what we call cognitive dissonance, right? So people don't want to learn about all that's going on in animal ag sector and how the animals are being mistreated. And that's partly because, you know, we have this tradition and culture and also a narrative that comes from the government education. You know, the kids have to drink milk, you have to eat meat, you know. And so in our culture, it's ingrained that, some, that eating animal products is something we do. And that's normal. And we all think of us ourselves as good people. And so then if you tell me that eating animals is creating some evil, I don't want to hear it because it creates this cognitive dissonance. It's like I'm a good person, but something I do every day, multiple times a day, is causing some evil. 
And that's a difficult thing for human brains. And we normally just deal with that by trying to ignore the message. So I can tell, you know, myself really as an example of this, potentially, you know, I used to be a meat eater. I'm from Russia. You know, we eat all kinds of dairy and a lot of other stuff. And I became vegetarian first. And then when people asked, you know, the reason I became vegetarian was because there were so many reasons to become vegetarian. And as an economist and super rational person, I was like, well, there's so many. There is environment, resource, economics, animal welfare, health, all these reasons to be vegetarian. But there aren't really any reasons to eat meat. I asked my doctor, is there any reason to eat meat? And my doctor said, no. So it's just, just because it tastes good is not good enough. And so I stopped eating meat. And then eventually I stopped eating other animal products. And it was very kind of non-emotional decision for me. But once I stopped eating animal products, the emotional part and concern about animal welfare came along because I no longer had this cognitive dissonance. I could tell to myself, wow, stuff I was doing before was causing evil, but I'm no longer doing this. So I'm a good person and now I don't have a problem with telling the truth about animal ag. And so and that's difficult and I'm not exact. That's why we're, you know, think that consumer messaging in terms of other things, climate, health, could be an entry level for people to switch their diets. And as they do, they develop compassion for animals and overcome that cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I have heard so many people say similar things. I have something to add to that, Marianne, if I can. I think what we tend to forget as advocates, like we say, why can't we just get people to do this? People are being bombarded with pro-animal food messaging all day. That is the advertising of the meat industry. It's an industry, again, not trying to kill animals for the fun of it. They're trying to make money and they are making money and that money gets recycled into advertisement. So when we talk about why is it so hard to get this message, I mean, if you watch any television, you will see commercial after commercial touting chicken nuggets and pizza and all of these things. And you're not seeing commercial after commercial showing what it's like on a factory farm. And what Galena mentioned in terms of we have this belief that we hold on to of this pastoral, you know, chickens running around the barn and the family farmer who's the salt of the earth and all that kind of stuff, that's gone. But you have a very powerful industry that works. I mean, look at what's written on the side of the delivery trucks. It's happy cows with sunshine. And there have been lawsuits about this. And unfortunately, we've tended to lose because the courts will assert that people understand that what's being painted as happy cows or happy chickens is just marketing, but people don't understand it. it. It's a whole zeitgeist. Most people would assume that their chicken is not coming from a factory farm, but it is. Virtually all chicken, I mean, you know, mathematically speaking, is coming from massive factory farms. So people don't know that. The industry is not advertising that. They're advertising something completely different. So to me, you could ask the question, how did we even get as far as we've gotten? How did we get as many people to even hear this message given what we're up against? But I do think this is where the climate coming in and more and more health information coming in is going to start to assist because we're going to start to get new allies. And there's certain realities are going to come to play, which are terrifying, you know, a climate change, but from the point of view of the animals may just be the thing that saves them. Because without climate change, maybe we would just be going along at the same pace. But the sad news is now we cannot go at the same pace. We are going to destroy the planet. And that will become obvious year after year after year. And it will 
force the change, I hope, that, and when I say I hope, that I hope that we don't just develop technologies to, you know, more efficiently kill even more animals or something like that. But it is a chance that we haven't had before, and we're going to do our best to take that chance. We're going to say, like humans do, we wouldn't choose this bad situation, but we're going to turn it into something good. And if climate change is what gets everyone to wake up about the unsustainability of animal agriculture, so be it. And hopefully things are going to start to move faster. Well, I, I really appreciate your positivity, Dave. <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of it myself. And and I pre really appreciate your generosity towards people that, you know, I tend to think that people kind of do know about factory farming and choose to ignore it for whatever reason. I'm always confused by it. But thank you for bringing that more positive viewpoint about people. I think it's something we really need in order to make change. And speaking of making change, I've kept you for a long time. But I have to ask one more question. You know, there's so much discussion floating around in the movement about, well, in not just in the movement, but about creating change, the relationship between individual action, which in this case, of course, would be going vegan and encouraging systemic action. And, you know, there are those people who say it's pointless to go vegan. We just have to work on encouraging systemic action. And there are those people who, you know, have different points of view. How do you feel about this? And in that context, whether individual action is important, what are the roles for grassroots activists, people who might be listening right now, aside from buying and eating the right food, what more should they be doing to help make these foods more successful? Okay. Well, so I, I pause for a moment because I know Galena has thoughts on this. And I know she's thinking all of the above, all of the above, you know, that we need individual action. That was what economists would call demand reduction. And we need action everywhere in the system. We need corporations, you know, like food service companies to change what they're putting on the menu. We need governments to stop subsidizing bad stuff and start subsidizing good stuff, all of the above. And it's really true because it's a complex system. So as long as you're doing something positive in that regard, it's good. Now, I do have a personal bias towards more of the institutional action only because we need a thousand times more of it, but we have had a lot of effort for quite some time on individual behavior change, and that's a tough one, and it needs to continue. But I think changing what's on the menu, what is the portion size? We were sponsoring some research of that. Could portions in restaurants be made smaller? Choice architecture, things like that in cafeterias, how things are placed in supermarkets. So there's a lot of things that institutions could do that would alter people's behavior that would not encounter a lot of the problems we have when we're trying to ask someone to forgo something that's near and dear to their heart, their way of eating. And so I think that that hasn't been explored as much. And so that may be, I think that that deserves a lot of the attention that it is getting. And I think also when you say, what should individual people do? I think be a role model. And it's not just by how you're eating, but this was a really hard thing for me to accept. I come through the martial arts. I do a martial arts called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And it's very much about a smaller person being able to use leverage and intelligence to beat a bigger opponent. And it's not by hitting them over the head because <laughs> they'll hit you over the head harder. So when you approach someone and say, hey, change, you're doing something bad, that gets people to put up their defenses. And at the end of the day, what we need to do for the animals is really simple. We just need to get people to agree with us. If everybody agreed with us, that's it. If factory farming is over, animal testing is over, it's all over. You don't tend to get people to agree with you by making them wrong and attacking them. And that has been my experience. So my experience is understanding, remembering that most of us did not grow up vegan. 
We were good people even before we were vegan. Give people a path. Understand what it is they want in their life. They want to be healthy. They want to feel good and take them down that path, in my opinion, in a non-judgmental way so that they can learn how eating less animals will get them what they want, whether that's health or helping the planet or whatever. And I think if you approach people in that way, they will be more receptive to the message and they won't just shut you down. So very specifically, bring over your meat-eating friends for dinner and serve them a great vegan meal. That's it. And don't even go be big about why it's vegan. Just at the end, mention, by the way, you know, there was no animals died for this. And everyone will feel good for that. And they might say, let's do it again next week. Or if, if you like Impossible Burger or whatever, buy one for your friend. Be an enabler of change without trying to tell people to change their personality. That's my advice. Can I just add a little bit? I want to also make people feel a little bit more empowered if they feel, oh, all I can do is just go vegan and I'm just one person. But I think there is leading by example. There is, you know, talking to your friends, not being shy, you know, not hitting people on the head, as David said, but not being shy about the, your choices. And what I also think could be impactful is expressing demand for vegan options or vegan defaults. Every meeting I go to, every food truck on the street, I stop by, even if it's really <laughs> obvious that all they have is a barbecue stuff. I always ask, do you have anything vegan? And the answer is always French fries. But if I keep asking every day, maybe there will be something eventually, and then maybe other people will choose to buy it. And so there is a power of voting with your dollar, and there is a power of expressing demand for what you need. And I've written to the Iron Man Foundation. I'm a triathlete and I've written to them saying, why are you offering only chicken broth on the running portion of the, you know, at the aid stations? Why don't you have a veggie broth or a miso soup or something like that? You're discriminating against me. They I did not believe, change anything. But. I can't believe they only have chicken broth. That's outrageous. I'm the only warm. The only warm thing they have is a chicken broth. Oh yeah. my gosh. It is outrageous. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I one thing that always drives me crazy is when people say, well, you know, I'm vegan at home, but when I go to somebody's house or when I go out with people, I don't like to inconvenience them. So I just, what I always say, and I don't mean this, don't write to me, but you don't have to be vegan at home <laughs> like if you don't want to be. The most important place to be vegan is where you can show other people that you're vegan and you're a nice person and you're a perfectly normal person and this is a great way to eat. And everybody has food needs these days. Everybody has their different little qualifications. You don't have to feel you're being rude by being vegan. I've heard people say that so often. So, you know, I, I've, I've done it myself, stopped into places where I know they don't have anything vegan and just asked them if they have something vegan just to be annoying. <laughs> so, not that we're being rude, David, just a little annoying. Hey, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I, one of the other things I wanted to say was it is important as people figure out what they want to do to help, they also look at what their skills are and what motivates yeah. them. And if someone is motivated to be more aggressive, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. We need lots of different things. I'm just speaking from my experience, but I do think finding your special niche in what you could do, even if you're not working for an NGO, can be very powerful. Most people do things where they can impact other people. I totally agree. And none of us really know how, how to pull this off. It's a big job, as you were saying before, changing the way the world eats. So people need to try different things and see uh, how they feel about it. And people have different personalities. So just don't be quiet. Just do something. And also just remember, we have to find 
this is going to sound, I think, Buddhist, but we have to find a way to both try to work for change to end the suffering and accept that we can do what we can do. Suffering is always going to occur in the world. For some reason, it seems like death usually involves suffering in the best of circumstances. And it's just part of life. And so don't get burned out. Just remember that we have this special, magical, holy capability of being humans in this world where we can be the voice for the voiceless and be that voice and understand. There's a saying out of my heritage, Judaism, it's not on you to finish the job, but neither are you free from doing the work. So none of us are going to end factory farming anytime soon. But we do our best, we do the work, and every time we do that, we are doing the most important work we can for the least powerful and most vulnerable, and we will win. We are going to win. We're just going to have to, we're trying to win faster, but we will win. Well, that is a really, really good note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank, and thanks for everything you do and for joining us today on Our Hen House. It's really been fascinating. Thanks for having us, Marianne. Thank you. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is probably the story that everyone is going to be anxious about for a really long time because it's getting bad. Well, it's already really bad and it's now getting bad for humans, which will make people pay attention perhaps. And I'm talking, of course, about H5N1, avian flu, it's spreading around the world in chickens, like at a rate that is is almost incomprehensible. And I just read a story about how it's just spreading everywhere in Latin America. That's one of the places it's really, but but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But what we're concerned about today and what I think anxieties must be rising about for everyone is what's happening in Cambodia. This is from The Guardian, WHO, WHO. WHO says avian flu cases in humans worrying after girls' death in Cambodia. I mean, no shit, really worrying. This poor child in Cambodia uh, died, and her father has now tested positive for H5N1. What they're trying to figure out is whether they caught it at the same place or whether he caught it from her or she caught it from him. Uh, Because if he caught it from her, she caught it from him. That's human-to-human transmission, and that means that we're unbelievably screwed. So uh, as this article says, there was subsequent testing of 12 of her contacts that revealed only one presence of the virus. They actually thought more of them had it than than just her father because a lot of them were sick, but apparently they did not have H5N1. And the World Health Organization said that there are increasing reports of bird flu in humans, and as I said, that they are worrying. No shit. Uh, you know, I, we've been hearing for, for the past, no, I don't know, is it weeks, months, that, that there's increasing 
incidence in mammals, uh, that's relatively recent. At least I've only been hearing about it relatively recently. I mean, in, in a bunch of different kinds of mammals, minks in particular, I think. Of course, minks are kept in, in horrific conditions of, of close confinement, so spread would be particularly terrible there. And, you know, the way this the way bird flu works is it goes from, from birds to another mammal, frequently pigs, and then it becomes swine flu. But we haven't heard anything about pigs so far. I haven't anyway. Pigs have an immune system, apparently, that's very similar to humans. So... You give this virus, this this millions of incubators or perhaps billions of incubators to work itself out into into new variations. And sooner or later, you get one that humans can get. And of course, humans have gotten this. This virus has been has been going around for a long time, I think, since 1996. In that time, oh, some 800 and so humans have been infected of those 457 died. So that means that that death, once humans get it, death is over 50% likely. So the real issue is whether, it's not so much whether humans can get it. Clearly humans can get it. They've gotten it before, though not very many when you think about it. Humans aren't around these birds that much, and, and it's probably pretty hard for them to get it. It's all very hard, and it's very hard for them the, for them the virus to, to accumulate sufficiently in a human host so that it can create variants that will eventually be transmissible to other humans. But once you've got that, once you've got human-to-human transmission, then you're screwed. Like, we're screwed. We're all going to die. And what's really annoying is the vegans are going to die, too. Oh, poor chickens. Poor, poor chickens. So Jonathan Ball, the professor of molecular virology at the University of Nottingham, said that the likelihood of onward human-to-human transmission is very low. I think that's a legitimate thing to say. So why are they panicking so much and why are they doing all this research? He says it's important to monitor circulation of flu in bird and mammal populations and do everything possible to reduce the number of infections seen. Quote, it also highlights why efforts to develop next-generation cross-reactive vaccines are so important. Why are they so worried about it if it's really, really hard? Because, you know, as I said, if it does happen... We're all screwed. All right. KMPH Fox 26, which I guess is a a radio station or a TV station. I'm not actually sure. A TV station in Fresno, California. KMPH Fox 26 hints at anti-Foster Farms pro-DXE bias. (laughs) I love this article. This is from Watt Poultry. And they're talking about the upcoming... The next DXE trials, uh, direct action everywhere, of course, uh, trials, which are, are, you know, currently in pretrial phase in Fresno, has to do with uh, the, the taking of chickens. I use the word taking advisedly because that's what this article wants me to say. On its website, it says KMPH provides a report on the latest court proceeding involving two members of animal rights group direct action everywhere. The headline itself Judge grants subpoena of foster farms after activist chicken rescue, hints at a bias towards the animal rights activists and a bias against foster farms, which is the largest broiler and turkey producer in the Western United States. Well, that we certainly shouldn't be biased against them, should we? The thing they're so pissed off about is the use of the word rescue. The, the two women who are on trial here, Alexandra Paul and Alicia Santorio, currently face theft charges. For, as this article says, allegedly removing two chickens from a truck. Did you get 
this this writer asked, did I use the phrase allegedly removing in the previous paragraph? That was very deliberate. So the writer of this article, one Roy Graber, is trying to be really fair, not saying whether it's rescue or, or theft, but unlike KMPH. <laughs> so he's so mad about it. The phrase removed does not imply either theft, of which the two women are accused, or rescue, which the DXE folks like to use. <laughs> We've all heard the phrase, he has to say, innocent until proven guilty, but it seems like KMPH is taking that phrase a little too literally. And if anything, trying to make foster farms look like the guilty ones. And people wonder why nobody trusts the mainstream media to be impartial and truthful. KMPH, you can and should do better. Of course, unfortunately, this could have an effect on the station. Uh, well, let's hope it doesn't. I just love that. I just love this article, but I particularly love it. In the context of the, the second article, which is Drovers.com, which I wanted to talk about, or actually it's my third article, Utah's animal burglary bill closes loophole to activists. Yeah, there wasn't any loophole. <laughs> this has to do with the last DXE trial. Whereas if you've been following it, you probably know that the two activists were acquitted of stealing uh, two piglets. Now, you may also have heard that Utah is now, at when, I'm, when I'm recording this, it has not yet been signed by the governor, but it has passed the legislature, um, saying that, that they closed a loophole that allowed two people accused of burglary to be acquitted last year after taking two sick piglets from a Beaver County pig farm. There wasn't any loophole. There wasn't even really a defense. But if there was a defense, if there had been a defense, if they had been allowed to, it's so convoluted, if they had been allowed to bring the defense that, that is being talked about here, it would have been a very standard defense in the criminal law. I've mentioned this before. I hope I'm not repeating myself. That you can commit what would be a crime in order to prevent a greater harm. You can trespass into a burning building to rescue somebody, to rescue a, a child or an animal, because the harm you're committing, that trespass, or, or if you take the animal out, the quote-unquote theft of that is, is obviously not nearly as great a harm as letting them burn to death. That's basically a very common kind of defense, not just in animal cases, but in any kind of defense. It's only common sense. It is not actually totally established that it's a defense in Utah, and the court in that in that activist case, didn't allow the defendants to bring that defense, didn't allow any evidence in to support that defense, said it was not a defense. Instead, the defense that they put forward was that the piglets that they took weren't worth any money and you can't be convicted of theft if, if, if the thing you're ste supposedly stealing isn't worth any money. And, you know, the jury acquitted them. They weren't charged with trespass, so there was no issue about that. So, so uh, in their infinite wisdom, the, the Utah state legislators have passed the Theft Defense Amendments Bill, which would change the state's criminal code to prevent, as a defense, taking livestock from an owner if it is sick, injured, or a liability to their owner. This is just so pathetic, really pathetic. Yeah, God forbid anybody should save these animals. According to the governor, who, as I said, has not signed it yet, but, you know, we don't have much hope there. I can't think of anywhere else where it's okay to trespass and steal property, but they didn't steal property. They were acquitted because, <laughs> you know, talk about uh, closing the barn door after the, the, well, whatever that expression is. They didn't, this wasn't even the defense that they brought at trial. 
According to this, to this article, one defendant argued that there's a big difference between stealing and rescue. He did manage to say that. I think that was Wayne Shung. And it says three others accepted plea deals. That's not right. Two others accepted plea deals to very minor charges. And, and one, uh, Paul Picklesheimer, was also acquitted. They got most everything wrong here. But, you know, they got what they wanted. They got the Utah State Legislature to pass the exact bill they want, no matter how reprehensible it is. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine. And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 